Welcome to Legacy Church, Amelia Island. We pray that you are blessed by the message that you are about to hear, and we believe that it will help you leave a Christ-glorifying legacy for generations to come. Legacy Church, let's give our moms a hand in the building. We honor you. We thank you so much for your life and your commitment to God and to us, and also our moms joining us online today. What a special day to be in the house of God and to honor all those who have such an impact in our lives. I want to do a quick poll real quick. Who is here today because of a praying woman? A grandmother, a mother, an aunt, a cousin, hands all over the building. We are here because of the power of praying women. Thank God for them. I'm here because of the power of Martina Cintron and Mercedes Claudio and, and my mom Zeta. And I see my aunt Martita here. I'm here because these praying women. I see my wife Courtney and my mother-in-law Patty. These praying women have me here today. And so I feel so indebted and thankful to God for all the lessons, all the prayers, all the he's going to get better and it's, it's going to take time. And, you know, mom and, and mother-in-laws and wives and, and, and aunts, they're, they're your biggest fans, right? When everybody says it's over, it's done, they're like, give them another chance. And so for that today, we honor our mothers and also we honor our women. Let me tell you why. The Bible calls whether you have children or not to have a motherly spirit, that you'd bring up the next generation. You'd mention that you love. And so many of you here today don't even have children. You have been a mother-like figure to others. And so we honor you in here as well today. And so it's a special day here at Legacy Church. We honor our mothers and our women and those who have the motherly experience. And before we jump in, I've got to read you something. I read this this past week, and I think you're going to relate with me here because it talks about the lessons that moms or people with motherly authority in our life taught us. Are you ready for this? Watch this. Things my mom taught me. My mom taught me to appreciate a job well done. She said, if you guys are going to kill each other, do it outside. I just cleaned the house. Anybody remember that one? She said, no, 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 I just mopped these floors. You walked in the house, you smelled pine saw, you walked right back out. You did not want to risk life and limb. My mom taught me some things. She taught me some things about religion. She said, you better pray that stain comes out the carpet. Anybody remember that conversation? My sister was changing a diaper one time with my little brother, and I was eating a Big Mac because that's what I do. I just eat. And I'm eating a Big Mac, and I guess I started gagging. I threw up all over the carpet. Mom, you remember this? And my oldest sister said, we'll hide it. We'll go get the mop. Well, she didn't know that mom had used bleach on the mop that day. All over the hallway carpet. Mom came home, and there wasn't a whole lot of praying to do. But mom taught me a lesson in that regard. Uh, Mom taught me about time travel. She was ahead of her time. Mom taught me that if you don't behave in front of company, I will knock you until next week. Anybody been knocked into next week? It's a real thing. You don't know where you've been once you come to. Happened to me once, and that's all I needed. I behaved in front of company. Someone say it was a different day back in the day. It was a different day. My mom taught me about logic. Very, very astute. She taught me about logic. I'd ask her questions and why, why, why. And she said, because I said so. That's why. There's no other why needed. Because I said so, and if you try me again, there'll be another response you're not going to like. And so now I use this response with my kids because I said so. My mother taught me about foresight in a very strange way. She said, make sure you wear clean underwear in case you get in an accident. (laughs) Who hurt the baby boomer generation? Who hurt them? Like, you're going to teach us about hygiene, but if we get in an accident... Like, I appreciate that, but my, that, that's a weird thing, Mom. That's a really 
weird thing. It's still hanging with me here today. Um, my mother taught me about stamina. She said, you're going to sit there and eat every one of those vegetables until that plate is empty. You're not going to move. And I'm going to sit here and watch you. You know, we're different today, us helicopter parents. We're like, sweetheart, you know what? Eat three carrots and one piece of broccoli and you can go. You can go and watch TV. My mom said, you move from there, you have to deal with me. There are starving children in third world countries. They never told us what third world countries. They never told us what children. There were just starving children who would die for the three pieces of asparagus and broccoli on my plate. My mother taught me about the circle of life. She taught me and my siblings. She lined all four of us up. She said, I brought you into this world. And I'll take you out of this world for free. I looked at my sisters and my brothers and said, I think our lives just got threatened. Like, mom just threatened to take us out. Let's back away and not turn our backs just in case. There's four of us and, and one of her. Lastly, my mother She taught me about justice. She said, you know what, Carlos? One day you'll have kids. And I hope they treat you just like you treat me. Mom, you are a prophet. They treat me just like I treated my mom. Give our moms a hand. Oh, man, there is special quarters for our mothers and for our motherly figures in heaven Thank you, ladies. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, ladies. Thank you for loving us and being there for us. I see my aunt right here. Random story, but like back in the late 90s, it was cool to have color contacts. The problem is I know how to put them on. True story. My cousin here, you can tell you, I would go every morning to their house so she could do what? Put my color contacts on. One woman wakes up at 630 in the morning to put fake contacts on her nephew. That woman. Women are a different breed. Anyways. Yeah, you can give her a hand for that. A lot of sleep you lost because of me and my color contacts, but it got the girl. Courtney's right here. It got the girl. Thank you, Dita. It got the girl. She's like, oh, so your eyes aren't hazel? I'm like, oh, about that, about that. Small details, small details. All right, well, today we're going to take a break from our series called What's Next, and we're going to honor the women of the house. We're going to honor our mothers and those of the motherly influence, and we're going to talk about a story that, that highlights the wisdom of women. We're going to talk about a story that highlights the characteristics of women that honestly work for a man or a woman. They're godly values and godly principles that I want to talk to you about today. So for the next few moments, I want to talk to you from the thought, the power of a godly woman. Someone look at your neighbor and say, the power of a godly woman. Pray with me, please. Lord, we honor you in this place today. There's nothing like you, Lord. We come gathered here today to celebrate our God and our King and to honor the blessings of mothers and motherly figures and those who have loved us when we were unlovable, who loved us when we couldn't love ourselves, who loved us when, Lord, we just needed another chance, who saw the best in moments at our worst. And so we honor and we thank you for this God-like trait in our mothers. And so, Lord, we welcome you. Holy Spirit, come and have your way and speak to every heart in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The power of a godly woman should never be undervalued or underestimated because God never undervalued or underestimated the power of a woman. When biblical society at times would would devalue women, you would see Jesus do everything in his power to do what? Elevate a woman. 
Where there was a woman at the well, did you know she was the first one to receive the message he was the Messiah? Do you remember Jesus always say, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. You never saw this. You didn't hear from me. You didn't get healed from me. But the woman at the well, he said, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Did you notice the woman who was caught in, the, in, in adultery? Jesus didn't say, woman, you should be stoned. He called her what? Daughter. Always oh, elevating the position of a woman. It was amazing. There's one exchange in Luke chapter 7 where a woman comes and she breaks an alabaster jar over the feet of Jesus. And you can hear the people in the background saying, oh, if he knew what type of woman this was. They knew about her past and her misgivings, and they knew about how she got around town and things like that. And Jesus, with loving eyes, looks at her and say, none of you came and anointed my feet. None of you sold out this way because, see, she didn't dab some perfume on him. She broke it over him. There was no going back. There was something about the experience. There's something about what God builds inside of a woman that Jesus honors here in his experience in the Scripture. The Bible even gives feminine traits to the most important parts of our faith. Did you know that? The church is not referenced in a masculine form. It's, it's referenced in a feminine form. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, it says, Husbands, if you get one thing right today, one thing right today, don't worry about the playoffs. If you get one thing right today, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for who? Not him. Her. There's something beautiful about the feminine trait. There's something beautiful about the woman. There's something that God wants to elevate in the woman. And he could have said him, he could have paired the church to a man in masculine traits. Said no. There's something so beautiful, something so valuable about a woman. I'm going to compare my church. What literally he dies for. What, what we are, the church, he compares that to a woman. Wisdom is given the trait, a feminine trait. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, Wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. Many of you know that there are some things you just got to go to mom about. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You got to make it to mom first before you get to dad sometimes. She's got some wisdom to calm him down, to soothe the beast on the inside. Make it to mom first. Cooler heads will prevail if we can get to mom first. Mom's got an innate wisdom. There are things that I have learned from my mother, my grandmothers. There are things I've learned from my wife, from my mother-in-law, from my aunt. There are things I've learned, even from my daughters as they're coming up, that I didn't learn from a male. I didn't learn from a man. I learned from godly women. It's amazing. In our church, you should know this, we have part of our leadership and part of our staff and part of our intercessor prayer, women who seek the face of God because it would be incomplete without women to bring what? A wisdom, a certain type of female, feminine wisdom into the, into the, into the church. Amen? You know, this interesting thing that I found out uh, as I got married, and with Courtney, I've been married 21 years now. What I found out is this, is that there's a wisdom God gives your spouse that you don't have without them. And I would ask about random things, like my background is, is corporate investment and banking. That's my background. That's not her background. But can I tell you, some of the biggest deals I closed, some of the biggest success I ever had is when I consulted her before anybody else. I can remember going to like one of the biggest deals of my career, and I sat with her. I'm like, hey, can we, can we talk about this or that? Or what's your perception, your thought? And her advice many times went further than others. There is just something about wisdom from a woman. There's something that God puts on the inside of them about interpersonal relationships and about how people take things and view things and how maybe our view is not the only view in the world. How about that, guys? There are other views. There are other ways to see things. Who knew? 
It's not just my way or the highway. No, that's dumb. That's broken. That's not the way. And wisdom, we're told, cries out from the streets in the public square with a feminine trait. It's interesting because as you read your Bible, you'll see this. God plans out the human race, and it would not be possible without the creation of a woman, without Eve. And every woman that comes after Eve, she is charged and she is entrusted to create the rest of the world. Think about this. Think about this for a moment. Every promise, every prophecy, every deliverer, every good thing God has ever promised, do you know where it's come from? The womb of a woman. Think about that for a moment. No promise, no purpose, nothing God has ever done, is doing, or will be done will ever happen without the womb of a woman. Are you kidding me right now? They are that purposeful. They are that intentional. They are that integral in the purpose and the plan of God that we don't even have a Savior, Jesus the Messiah, the redemptive plan of God without the womb of someone named what? Mary. God's plan says, I honor them so you honor them. I bless them with children or I bless them with a motherly spirit because the Bible says every woman is called to have a motherly spirit in the same way every man is called to have a fatherly spirit that we'd raise up the next generation. We'd show them what good looks like. we show them the values. My dad would always say something to me. He'd always say, you're not going to make mistakes I made. We're not going to do over this. You are going to not do what I'm going to do. And so that's what every woman and every man is charged to do. There's no surprise then with that being said. There's so much to learn from women of the faith. There's so much to learn from women in our lives. There's so much to learn from women in our church. There's so much that oftentimes, if I'm being honest, I think men overlook. I think we don't see the the value that they have in, in our culture, in our church, and everywhere else. Apparently to Jesus, they had a whole lot of value. The first one to know he's Messiah, the first one to be an evangelist, brought him on his team, on his staff, in his place. They were there at the cross. They're there at the tomb. They're there at the ascension. Apparently, there's something there that the rest of us need to learn about. Today, I want to talk to you about a woman whose influence changed the trajectory of the most powerful kingdom in the world of her time. This woman was a, was a big deal. Her, she changed the trajectory of, of the course, really, of history when you study the story. And it's funny because I know a few pilots in my life, and one thing they've taught me is trajectory is a big deal. A couple degrees off, and you go in an entirely different place. Like if you took off from a runway today in downtown Jacksonville, and, and you, your trajectory was a little bit off, and you were planning on going to Hawaii for vacation, but you ended up in Russia for vacation, I haven't been to either place, but I can tell you, I can assume it's a whole different experience. Trajectory is everything, and And this woman who changed the trajectory of a kingdom, she was bold, courageous, faithful, loyal. She was independent and strong. She had faith. She had influence. She moved not just great kingdoms, but she moved great men. And also her beauty is spoken about internally as well as externally. We're talking about one of the most powerful queens to ever walk the earth. I'm talking Queen Elizabeth had nothing on this queen. This woman She'd walk into a room and everybody would be silent, standing at attention. This woman, we're not talking about from a few thousand years ago. We're talking about over 2,500 years ago. We're still talking about her story. It's my pleasure to introduce you today to Queen Esther. So if you want to turn with me in your Bible, to Esther chapter 1. This is where we're going to spend our time. And, and our goal here before we get moms out to their special meal is to go through this book 1 through 7 and just highlight some verses to give you the contextual piece to this story to help you appreciate it. 
While you turn to Esther chapter 1 in your apps or in, in your paper Bibles, I'm all for the paper Bible. This one can't die from the battery, and you, can't, you don't have to worry about an app update. But this story of Esther, you need to know this. Only two books in the Bible reference the names of a woman are known by the names of a woman. That would be Esther and Ruth. And so it's a pretty important thing that Esther and Ruth lived such a life. They didn't write the books, but they championed the book in the sense that it's written after their characteristics and their qualities. You know this as well. This is the only book in your Bible, listen to this, that doesn't mention the name of God, Yahweh, Adonai, or anyone else in that form. You just see his fingerprints all over the book. You just see his calling card all over the book. And so you'll see him move. You'll see him work. You just see him not saying his name or anything of that nature. And so Queen Esther, before she's queen, you should know this about her. Her background is humble beginning. She doesn't come from the royal stock. Queen Esther is actually an enslaved Jewish girl who had been orphaned as a child. And she's raised by her big cousin Mordecai, which scholars say is probably 15 years older than her. Esther has a neat story because she doesn't come from a lot. She doesn't have this certain pedigree. She's not educated in the best halls of academia. She doesn't have what you would perceive that would push somebody to be successful and take them into great places. But what Esther shows you and I today, ladies and gentlemen, is that Esther doesn't allow her past to dictate her future, nor does she allow her trauma to affect her trajectory. It doesn't matter where she comes from. It doesn't matter that she's a slave girl. It doesn't matter that she's in a foreign land and had to learn the language. It doesn't matter that her Hebrew name is now turned to a, a Medo-Persian name. It doesn't matter. Why? Because she begins it in the quiet times. You hear what I'm saying? The quiet times with God. God speaks to her heart, and she begins to see this, that big doors, they swing on small hinges. Big moves of God swing on small hinges. Your quiet time with God, your faithfulness to your family, your faithfulness to your career, your faithfulness to be obedient, your faithfulness to turn away from temptation, your faithfulness when nobody's looking, that's where the biggest doors open, the smallest of moments and the smallest of hinges. This is the life of Esther developing here in real time. And in a series of events that unfolds, the king, King Xerxes, is looking for a new queen. How about that? Doesn't happen often. You won't read many stories where a king is just well, I'm looking for a queen today. But through a series of events, he's looking for a new queen. And I'm just going to guess, just going to guess, he's not looking for a queen who's a Jewish slave, orphan, and uneducated. I'm, I'm probably, that's probably not on top of his list. It doesn't know the customs. I mean, what would they even talk about? Her slave days? Her people who used to be back in Jerusalem? Jewish customs? The Sabbath? What would they even talk about? And so in Esther chapter 1, verse 2, we're going to run fast here. Watch this. It says, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. This is historical as well. You can look up his reign. Verse 3, it says, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. All the boys came into town. All the kings came into town. And what we're told is that for 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and splendor and glory and majesty. You thought you used to club. You thought you used to bar hop. You thought you used to be the one that had to flick the lights on and off. Hey, you, you got to leave. You got, we're closing the doors. 180 days? You didn't want to party with King Xerxes. Like some of you like nervous. Like you like, used to be in that culture. You used to be in that world. Don't be nervous. It's okay. Like you thought you used to go out and not come home. Like are you kidding me? 180 days of just lavishness. If you read the chapter, he even broke out the good China moms. He broke, he broke out the, the, the gold cups. 
And so 180 days, he's partying. He's, he's throwing this party nonstop. He's, he's throwing everything out here because historians and scholars say that he wanted to get some of these people to come along with him to, to go to war with him and conquer some other countries and some other nations. And so he's, he's really putting on all the stops here. Verse 12, it says this, or verse 10, rather. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, I guess he would be 180 days. High on something. It ain't life. Spirits from wine, he commanded. Now, I underline that so you can know this. When a, the king of Medo-Persia makes a command, it's not a suggestion. It's kind of like mom. It's not a suggestion. It's not, what do you think, honey? Not, not in my house growing up. When he makes a command, it's life or death, like mom. It's, it's life or death. Either it's going to go good or going to go bad. Two ways. If you didn't listen to the king, then you would lose your life. So he makes a command, and what's his command going to be? To bring before him Queen Vashti. Someone say Vashti. No reason other than it's a cool name. I wanted you to say it. Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look out. Look at. What kind of male chauvinist want to parade a trophy wife around a bunch of drunk friends? Are you kidding me right now? The scripture and scholars will tell us this. It wasn't just her coming, just kind of do a quick circle. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. How's the kids? How's the kingdom? Any executions lately? It was more than that. Scholars say he was asking to parade around in some sexual type of way. I'm not sure if it's what she was wearing. I'm not sure if it was a certain dance. Scum scholars say it was just the crown and nothing else on. See, what you don't know about Queen Vashti is she was good all by herself. Queen Vashti was the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. She knew how to defend herself. And so he was going to humiliate her for his own pleasure in front of his drunk friends. And let's just say Vashti said, yeah, it's not going down like that today. We see this. It says in verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti says she refused to come? What? You don't see this in scripture. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. A whole lot of things are said and done, I'm sure. But here's how it closes out in 19. Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, the king gives her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Wow. The king says, this won't do. Vashti says, I like it, but not that much. She stands her ground, and the king says, this won't do. And so uh, what others would call Trauma, God calls preparation because now who's he going to raise up? What other calls, man, that's really a hard life that you live. You went through that at home. You got hurt that many times. You were abused that many times. You saw your parents do what? You were raised with who? You, had, you did without what? And what others would call trauma, God calls preparation for testimony. And so now that Vashti's out the way, it's a new time, it's a new season, a new space. And so now in Esther chapter 2, it says this in verse 2, then the king's personal attendants proposed that a search be made for, a beautiful young, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring, someone say all, all these beautiful young women to the harem of the citadel of Susa. So when they say all, let me give you context. The Medo-Persian empire was over 50 million. Historians would say there's probably half are women, so 25 million women this beauty contest is going to consist of, okay? Pretty big beauty contest. Verse 7, I'm going to skip through a couple of verses to get, to get to the action and the meat here. It says this, verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother, this woman who is also known as who? 
See, her Hebrew name, Hadassah, is going to be changed now in this land that's not hers as Esther. Esther had a lovely figure. Every married man said, Amen. She had a, come on, every married man said, Amen. Had a lovely figure. My wife asked me one time, What's the first thing you noticed about me? I said, Your eyes, sweetheart, of course. Your eyes, of course. Of course, your eyes. Lovely figure. But it was her eyes that, he, that, that they noticed about Esther, I promise you. Every man, every 25 million of them noticed her beautiful eyes because she was beautiful. Mordecai, this is big cousin, okay? Mordecai has taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Those of you who have lost a parent, you know the real trauma of losing father and mother, compacted on the trauma of being in an enslaved place as a slave girl in a new space, learning a new language, new culture. They're even going to change your name taken everything from you. Verse 8 says, When the king's ordered edict had been proclaimed, many young women who were brought to the citadel of Susa are put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who, charged, who was in charge of the harem. She pleased him, and watch this in verse 9, won his favor. Now that's strange because she don't know the customs. She don't know the culture. She wasn't raised to know how to please or, or, or impress someone of the, of the Medo-Persian empire, but she won favor. Immediately he was provided, she, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. She won favor, we're told. And I'm just wondering if sometimes you and I were praying for the wrong things. God, open this. God, open this. God, do this. Maybe you and I just need God's favor. Just need to be led by his spirit and led by his love and led by his word and stop praying for God to, to do this and to do that. Lord, let me just have your favor because God favors lets you know if you're in the right situation or the wrong situation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I where I'm supposed to be? Have you seen God's favor? Have you seen him go before you? We're told that without even trying, God goes before her and she has favor. He assigned her to seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best, into, into the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background, didn't know she was a Jew, because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Let's go to verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to watch this, ladies, complete how many months? 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, six with perfumes and cosmetic. Man, you thought your wife took a long time to get ready? 12 months, you have somebody die over here waiting. And this was how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take her from the harem to the king's palace. Women, give you context, 12 months, all-inclusive spa days. Hair. Nails, toes, mani-pedi, eyelashes, massages, paint on your eyebrows, whatever you want, it's available, free of charge, full 12 months. Someone said, take me to a harem, take me to Medo-Persia for at least a year. I'm willing to go if they want to take me at this point. Um, Verse 15. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Do you see that word pop up again? Favor. There's something, there's something that God is showing you and I here. She didn't have to push her way through. She didn't have to kick through doors. She had to say, do you know how great I am? Do you know how blessed I am? Do you know how many scripture I know? Do you know how much I give? Do you know how much I serve? Do you know my sacrifices? There's something that just went before her. And, and as people met her, didn't even know her story, didn't know that she was a Jew, didn't know that she was a slave girl, didn't know that she was broken and had trauma from life. She just kept winning favor. Everyone who saw her was, was saved. 
She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Verse 17 says, now the king was attracted to Esther's eyes. I promise you, it was, it was her eyes. I promise you, Courtney, it was your eyes. The king was attracted to Esther's eyes more than any of the other women. And won't you know what shows up for the third time? She won his what? Favor. Because God stirs the hearts of kings. It's not about your boss and your boss's boss and your career. God stirs the hearts of kings. And she won favor and approval more than any other of the virgins. I, I don't know how many. I know there's 25 million. And I know they whittled them down to a certain amount. But she wins this favor, this God-given favor. And I'm going to keep saying this. Maybe we start praying differently. Instead of God give me and God put me, God, let me walk in your favor. Let me walk in the place that you have for me. The Bible says the steps of the righteous are what? Ordered. That is his favor before you and behind you. He's not just going before you. We're told he's your rear guard. He can open up circles. He can open up places man can't. And so maybe it's less about the networking and the after hours and everything else going on and more time in the presence of God. Because all she has on her side against 25 million other women is God. And time in his presence and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, we just found out it was more than enough. It supersedes her. It elevates her. It gets her promoted above everyone else who've been brought up in the royal court. One day, you're going to be a princess and you're going to be a queen. No, they weren't. The broken, traumatized, slave, orphan, Jew, Hadassah, that's who was going to be queen because that's who God purposed to be queen. And so she won favor and approval more than any other of the virgins. So watch what he does. He sets, he personally, the king, sets a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of who? Vashti. We're told it's about a four-year gap between this time. The queen just wants him a queen. <laughs> Spend some time here. And he, he picks her. God stirs his heart. It moves on his heart. Why? Because God has a purpose and a plan for everything in your life. Mother, woman, motherly spirit, man, student. God has a plan for every part of your life. And I'm going to blow your mind real quick. Watch this. The worst moments of your life, your worst sin, your worst moments, the stuff you'd never tell people about, the, people, the things that only a few people know about you, those things, God even uses those as part of his plan and part of his kingdom. The, the worst traumas we saw, I can't imagine being taken from my land to another land. I can't imagine my name, my culture, everything ripped from me. But God uses this for his glory. And so someone will say, man, this is a very serendipitous story. I'll share this with my coworkers tomorrow. You'd be wrong. This is not coincidence. This is not by chance. As a matter of fact, I'm going to teach you something today. I'm going to teach you, because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. I'm going to teach you the Hebrew word for coincidence. You ready to hear it? Ready to learn it? Here it goes. It'll be on the screen. The Hebrew word for coincidence doesn't exist. We made the word coincidence up. Why? Because you can't give God glory. Why? Because you can stay bitter. Why? You, can, you cannot get better. Why? You can give man credit. You can give your degree credit. You can give everyone else credit but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Jesus who died on the cross, but the one who lives to intercede on your behalf, but the Holy Spirit who's incubated on the inside of us. In Hebrew, God said, I'm not going to give you a word. There won't be a word for coincidence because it'll just be a lie. It will be false advertisement. It will be, as I taught my daughter this past weekend, going down the fiction section 
I take my daughter to the library. Like, I want her to know about stuff. You know what I'm talking about? She says, what's a library? So I've been showing her what a library is. The Lord says, I want you to know what's fiction and nonfiction. Coincidence? Fiction. Doesn't exist. All things work together for the good. Who are called according to his purpose and the plan. Everything works to the good. Someone you got invited today, you don't know this yet, so I'm going to help you out. Everything works to the good. I'm not just talking about your past. I'm talking about last night. I'm talking about the way you felt driving in this morning. I'm talking about the way they make you feel every time they text you and every time they call you and every time they miss a birthday and every time they miss a chance to honor and to love you. I'm talking God uses everything for the good. This past weekend, I buried my nephew. God used everything for the good. Are you hearing me right now? I've been crying and hurting. and God uses everything for the good, even if you don't know how he's going to use it for the good. I don't know yet how he's going to use the death of my nephew for the good. I don't yet know. I just know he will because he shows it here. I just know that he will. I just know that he will. I still see him in my heart as this little kid who I love, but God's going to use it for his glory and for his honor. The one who had been rejected, the one who nobody wanted so her cousin had to raise, the one whose name was changed, the one whose culture was stripped and ripped away, that one, that obscure one, she now becomes the queen over 50 million people. How about that? How about that for God working? How about that for God moving? How about that not just for her life, but how about that for your life? Because consequently enough, you serve the same God, Yahweh. He's the same one that you and I serve as well. She becomes the leader over this nation along with King Xerxes. Disney Cinderella's got nothing on Queen Esther. Not a thing. Walt Disney missed this one. As she becomes queen, there are developments going on in the background that you need to know about. There are things happening in the background as she becomes queen. She's elevated like you're going to be elevated in life, not for herself, but for God's purpose and God's plans. The things that God is doing in the background, behind the scenes, she's elevated for these things. And when God gives you opportunity and chance and friends and family and influence and affluence and money and promotions and everything else you're praying for God to do, when he does it, let me help you out. It's not just for you. She finds out what God did wasn't just for her. As the story develops, we, are, we find out this, that um, the house of the Jews and the people of God are at risk. There's an evil character in this story. You need one in every story, right? This evil character is called Haman. And so he becomes the right-hand man of King Xerxes. Before Esther comes into the picture, he's a right-hand man. He, he's a brown noser. He sits at the front of the class. He answers every single question. He, he, he helps the teacher out with whatever the teacher needs. And so now he becomes part of the royal court. And when he walks by, you got to bow to him and, and things like that. Well, you, you guys remember big cousin Mordecai? He's not down with bowing to this guy. And so that becomes problematic. And we're going to jump into now Esther chapter 3 and verse 5. We're running here. Ready? When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was what? Enraged. This guy was prideful. He was arregant. He, was, he, he, had a little, uh, he, had a, he had a king complex. He's not the king, but he wants to be bowed to. He was enraged. Verse 6 says, Haman looked for a way to destroy not just Mordecai, but watch this, Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the province of your kingdom. So now he's going to go to the king and say, hey, I'm going to get these people all killed, not just this one guy. I'm going to take out his whole line. That's how bad he hates him. That's how bitter he is towards him. He says, they're dispersed among the province of your kingdom. They keep to themselves. 
They have customs that are different from those of our people. They, they read the Torah. They read the law of Abraham uh, and, and Moses, and, 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 and they do the, sh- the Sabbath and the Shabbat. They're, they're really weird, weird people. They keep to themselves. Their customs are different from those of our people. They don't obey the king's laws. He's not being honest here. It's not the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to do what? Destroy them. Not just get rid of them out of this country. Destroy them. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman. Done deal. When a king made, uh, gave a signet ring and made a decree, it was a done deal, Medo-Persia. Verse 11, he says, do with the people as you wish. This is problematic because who's Jewish that the king doesn't know about? Esther. Verse 13 says, dispatches were sent out by courage to all the king's provinces with orders to do what? Destroy, kill, and annihilate not just one or two, not a handful, not the problematic ones. All the Jews, young and old, women and children on a single day. So a day is given to, to kill the Jews. Now, this message, it doesn't reach Queen Vashti. Guess who it reaches? Queen Esther. Do you see how God is working? Do you see how God is moving? Do you see God's plans are already in the works? Many of you need to understand this. Whenever there's trouble in your life or troublemakers in your life, here's what you need to know. Isaiah 54, 17 says, before trouble shows up into your life, he says, I formed the smith who blew on the coals, who fashioned and formed the weapon that is now formed against you. God says the problems, which usually come from problem makers or or people who are issues, he said, I created them. I formed them. And so if I form and I fashion them, guess what? I formed a deliverance for you. And Esther is not going to be part of the deliverance. And so what we're going to see here is God is already working in the midst. I also want to draw your attention to this. You see in multiple generations throughout history, anti-Semitism, prejudice, and racism. Many generations. And it's not hard to imagine that for us, just 80 years ago, there was concentration camps in Germany. Like, what? Jews have always been sought after to, to, to get rid of, to, to not just kill one, but end their race. Do you know Why? Because the name Jew means the pr- to praise the Lord. It, it, it signifies that God is great. It signifies that he's worthy. Embedded in the name of a Jew, embedded in the culture, is God is great. And he's worthy to be praised. And so who's behind this? The devil. Satanic attacks. Every generation. Let's get the Jew out. Even in the Christian church, people get real uncomfortable when we talk about Jews. Well, what? The message for the Jew first? Or we talk about the Sabbath or Shabbat? Like They get real comfortable with that stuff because you don't understand what the devil tried to do throughout history. Make us feel uncomfortable, watch this, about God's plan. He gave the Jew the message first. They're the older sibling. Someone asked me, well, are they better? Well, is your older sibling better? No. They were just born first. They were just given the insight from mom and dad first, and they passed it down to us. And like never before, we're seeing many Jews receive Jesus as their Messiah. And we're still praying for the, the peace of Jerusalem and for more Jews to come to Messiah. So that was just free of charge for your information there. So what happens here? Now the word reaches Esther. Haman advises Esther to go to the king and say, hey, Esther, hey, you're there. To go talk to the king. Let him know what Haman is doing, what Haman is up to. See, here's the problem. He doesn't know what it's like to be in her shoes. He's never been in the royal court. He doesn't know that you just don't go up to the king and say, hey, king, got something on my mind. I want you to hear me out. Doesn't work like that. Watch this. Esther chapter 4, verse 11. She's telling him through messenger what's going on. 
All the king's servant and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman, watch this, goes to the king inside his inner court without being called, there's one law. Someone say one law. Be put to death. Except to the one who the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. She said, yeah, Haman, that's a cute thought. But if you go to the king unannounced and he doesn't send for you, doesn't put his scepter out, heads are rolling. And then she goes on to say, and here's the worst part about it, but that's for me. I have not been called to come to him these past how many days? 30 days. So she says, I don't know what he's been up to. Hadn't included me for 30 days. Now you want me to, I don't know what kind of attitude, kind of disposition he's going to be in. Obviously, kingdoms work differently and this relationship worked differently. But she goes, I don't know what I'm walking into. Verse 14, this is her big cousin Mordecai. He says, yeah, but sweetheart, little Esther, probably calls her Hadasha, little Hadasha. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, it will rise from the Jews from another place. He's saying, you're not God. God's going to save his people. God's going to save his purpose and his plans. Like the Messiah, he's going to come through our line. You're not God, but let me just let you know this. But you and your father's house, it's going to perish. You see, here's where she doesn't have children, but she's a mother. And whether you have children or not, you're a mother. You're a mother over your home. Single or married, children or no children, empty nester, grandparent. You're a mother over your children, grandchildren, or just your home. He says, your home is going to perish unless you speak up for the things of God. Unless you create a standard in your home and God is first and God is priority and you live for him and you lead your home well as a co-priest of your home. You get your family to the table frequently and not just eat at it, but talk about the things of God. He says, ma'am, you might not think you're a mother. You're a mother. Because he says, your house will perish, your father's house. And who knows whether, and here's the famous quote that people just talk about and leave the story after this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for what? Such a time as this. Who knows if God can elevate you in the positions that you are in, the authority that you have, the opportunities you have for such a time as this. And so she processed in real time. Historians tell us she's late teens, early 20s. A lot of process as now a mother over 50 million and, and now the Jews and what's going to happen here. A lot of process in real time. And so in chapter 4, verse 16, here's her response after processing. The girl knew her God, you can tell. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold what? Fast on my behalf. You don't read the name of God, but who are they fasting and praying to? Yahweh, Adonai, God. A fast on my behalf. My girl doesn't just have a good figure. She knows how to what? Fast. That's why maybe she had a good figure. Who knows? But she knows how to pray. She knows how to fast. And we see that God honors that. She said, don't eat or drink for three days or nights. I and my young women. And so her young women were probably Jews as well because they knew how to pray and fast. We'll also fast with you. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if what? Perish, I perish. She says, then I will go to the king. I think if many of us took that approach, I'll fast and I'll pray first before I go have this argument, before I go talk this out, before I go make this decision, before I go make a mess and ask God to bless my mess, I might want to be like Queen Esther. I might want to pray and fast first. I might want to seek God's face first. Instead of blaming everybody else, maybe I'm coming in the wrong attitude or the wrong disposition. So Esther now chooses to find her success and watch this, sacrifice. Esther finds her success in what? Sacrifice. Who else found their success in sacrifice? Jesus. Jesus found his success not in walking on the water, not in raising lads from the dead. Jesus found his success in the piercing in his wrists. 
and the hole in his side and the piercing in his ankles. That's where he found a success, the redemption of mankind. Why? Here's a question for Esther. Ready? Why does she even have to concern herself with this stuff? This is not her problem. You ever heard somebody say, that sounds like a you problem? You ever heard somebody say that? My daughter said that the other day. I was like, where'd you get that from? She goes, that sounds like a you problem. She's got unlimited spa days. She probably, she's received a message. She's getting a real did. She's getting a Swedish massage. You know, she, she's, the acrylics are dry and she, this is a Mordecai problem. This is a Jew problem. She's the queen. She got chosen. She's good with the king. But she concerns herself with this issue, apparently, for somehow, some way, she chooses to sacrifice. But here's my question. Why? Why get involved? Why put her neck on the line? Why mom's in the room? Why, why get involved? Why put your neck on the line? Why allow yourself to get hurt again by people who you love? Why put yourself on the line? Here's what we find out in her story. Because sometimes God calls you to greater things than comfort. Every mom said amen. Every motherly spirit in the room said amen. Every father said amen. Every fatherly spirit says amen. Sometimes God calls you to greater things than comfort. Very anti-American. I get it. Every anti-part of our world that God would call me to hurt, that he would bless suffering, that he would call me into difficult seasons. And many women know what I'm talking about here today because you sacrifice much of your life for your children, grandchildren, or if you have a motherly influence. You sacrifice your body. You sacrifice your education. You sacrifice your career. You sacrifice your dreams. You sacrifice your goals. You sacrifice your comfort because you understand there are greater things in this world than comfort. There are things worth giving your time and attention to than just comfort. And what you know that the Bible tells us through the story of Esther is this, is that sacrifice equals success in God's kingdom. See, in our kingdom, in our social media platforms, in the places you hang out with your friends and your family, they're all talking about, well, I accomplished this, and I accomplished that, and I did all this, and, and I've got all this to show for it. And many of you ladies, many of you women in here were just like, well, I just got a bunch of sacrifice in my life. I've, just, I've given up a lot. I've gone without. Now, you know, my husband or my kids, look at all they've accomplished. And, but it was because I sacrificed because I was there. I was cooking, and I was watching the kids, and, and, and I was taking care of things. And because of my sacrifice... I know for my family, when we moved in 1987 to Florida from the north to get out, it was my mom's sacrifice that she had to. Now, people see my dad on stage preaching and me on stage preaching, like, you're the greatest preacher. We love your church. No, you, you missed the sacrifice in 1987 when she had to get my dad out of South Jersey and Camden. You, you missed the sacrifice. If you've ever clapped for me one time, you've clapped for her every time. You, you've missed the sacrifice. And to my women out here, because it's your day, to my women out here with children or motherly spirit, let me help you out with this. When people want to talk about their degrees and their accomplishments and, and what they've done and where they've been and just how accomplished a woman they are, and you just like, oh, I just got a bunch of sacrifice. God gave me this for you, and I'm going to read it to make sure I get it right. If you measure your success in life by what you've sacrificed more than what you've achieved, here's the key word, by worldly standards, you will find your sacrifices are your greatest accomplishments. See, the world will say, you've only done what? You've only accomplished what? But like Jesus, your greatest accomplishments at the end of your life will come via your sacrifice. (sighs) Okay, back to Esther. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put her royal robes on over that figure, let's not forget men, over that figure, and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. 
The king was sitting in his royal or on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And so what's her decision? I'm going to do it. Pray and fast. I'm going to seek God first. Then I'm going to do it. So she feels good about it. She's going to go to the king. She lives or she dies. Let's find out. When, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. There's something in his heart that said, oh, I'm so happy to see her. And held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand, which is let all his guards know that she can come. So Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Watch this language. Even half to the kingdom will be given to you. He was so genuinely happy to see her. She said, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman. You guys remember who Haman is, right? That's the evil guy. That's the one planning to exterminate the Jews. That's, that's the king's best friend. Together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, that's what the king's best pastime is, it seems. As they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther, now that you're, now what is your petition? He's like, interesting, he's like, people usually pepper me with requests and you're just waiting. It's like this delayed gratification. What's going on here? What is your request? Even, he says again, half to the kingdom, it will be granted. And something happens in verse 7. I don't know what's happening, but she has literally, like the scripture says, a table in the presence of her enemies. King on one side, Haman on one side. King loves her. King don't love Haman. She's meeting needs. Haman's not meeting. King loves her. And now she can just put the whole story out there and get safety for her family. But watch what happens. She said, my petition and request is this. And then in verse 8, that the king and Haman come tomorrow? But wait, sweetheart, you're at the table. Who knows if the king's in a good mood tomorrow? Who knows if you get this chance again? So she gets them there, but something happens spiritually. Men, women, students, sometimes when God doesn't give you peace to move forward, stop. Don't let anybody pressure you into anything you're not ready for. Anything that God doesn't, con- doesn't, doesn't confirm in your spirit, stop. She prayed, she fasted, she got them to the table. I don't know if her spirit wasn't in the right space. I don't know if she was going to act in the flesh. I don't know if she's going to lose her mind. She thought about the last family member being impaled on a pole, which the story tells us Haman was planning. I, I don't know what was going on, but she gets everybody. She's got the set. The table is set literally and figuratively to get rid of him. And she goes, can we do this tomorrow? And I will prepare for them. Then, they, then I will answer the king's question. Something is, is happening here. Something doesn't agree in her spirit. So the next 24 hours, she prays and she processes what's going to go on and what's going to happen and what's going what's to transpire. And in between this, like I told you, Haman, he's preparing to kill the Jews in front of his house at the advice of his wife and his family. He sets up posts because he's going to, here's his idea, I'm going to impale Jews. Who hurt him? I, I, I don't know exactly, but uh, he's going to impale Jews. That's what he wants to do in front of his house so everybody could see no one crosses him. And so here we go, and here's how it closes out the story. Esther chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. Is this day one? Day two. Second banquet, okay? She didn't get it confirmed in her spirit. She felt pressure. She felt in the flesh. She felt something was off. I can't tell you what. We just know she heard God's voice. Let's come back tomorrow. And the king, he was in the right frame of mind. He could have said no. He said, yeah, we'll come back tomorrow. And as they were drinking wine, there you go, the king's favorite pastime. As they were drinking wine, on the second day, not the first day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? You got a queen, a king asking a queen, what can I do? What can I do? Very unique language. 
What is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. For I am my people. She just spilling the beans. Spilling the tea. It's all coming out here. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If I had been merely sold as a, we had been merely sold as a male or female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would qualify disturbing the king. This would be the equivalent men of your wife coming telling you, yes, yeah, someone wants to kill me and my family. <laughs> Verse 5, King Xerxes asked Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing, he, I can just see start taking off his robes and like, where's he at? What's he look like? Where's he live? What's his name? What's his brother's names? I mean, think about this. He sat with the king and said, someone wants to take my life. He's already lost the queen. Four years, has another queen now, and, and he's pleased by her presence. He, he's a better man because she's in his presence. And, and someone wants to take her and her family out. And he... He doesn't know what to do with this information. And so he's, he's going back and forth. And watch this in verse 6. Esther has the strength of the Holy Spirit, and she just comes out with it. She says, remember who's at the table? We've got who? Esther, King Xerxes, and one other person, Haman. Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, no doubt with tears welling up in her eyes, no doubt remembering the death of her parents, no doubt remembering being brought to a foreign land. And she's like, it's happening again. I thought I found peace this time. It's happening again. She goes, an adversary and an enemy. And she just looks right across the table. This vile Haman. You can imagine what the room felt like. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage, just just threw everything and and left his wine. He's mad, y'all. He left his wine. And went out to the palace garden. He's got to blow some steam off. He's got to figure out what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. But Haman realized that the king had already decided his fate. Done deal. Stayed behind. And watch what Haman does. The one who was going to kill everyone. The one, watch this, he's wearing the signet ring of the king. See how fast God can change the tables? See how fast God can turn stories around? See how fast God can change you from being a zero to a hero, where God can turn things from going the worst to the best? He's got the signet ring on his hand. And we're told he stayed behind to beg Queen Esther, not the king. So he knew the way to the king's heart was not the king, but who? Esther. Because she's got wisdom. She's a woman of faith. To beg for his life. Verse 8 says, watch, watch, watch how godless things just work out. Haman was going to impale Jews. Haman was hurting everybody. Haman, he thought he was everything right. Verse 8, just as king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen? Oh, man, the king is, the king is done. He's starting to take out all his, all his gold jewelry. It's, it's game time. Let's go. Let's go. Done. Will even molest the queen while she is with me in my house. From his purview, from his perspective, he was accosting his queen. Watch this language. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. They didn't even get a chance to speak up because of all the evil he had done to the people of God and to the house of God. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, 
Hey, King, uh, there's been talk around the palace, a pole reaching uh, to a height of 50 cubits stands by, guess whose house? Haman's house. He set it up for Mordecai, cousin Mordecai, the one who raised her, for Mordecai who spoke up to the king, who spoke up to help the king. Mordecai had saved the king's life in a previous story. Then the king said, hey, I got an idea. Just came to me. Impale him on it. So every time the enemies come against you, every time things have come against you, people have come against you, every time things have been stacked against you and and, and you just don't know why and how, what God will do, I want you to remember verse 10. So they impaled Haman on the pole. He set up for who? Mordecai. They impaled Haman on the pole. He set up for Mordecai. And you keep reading the story and the rest of his family. See, he was going to exterminate the family of the Jews, but he ended up falling to the fate that he planned. And all this happens because a woman of faith saves her household. A woman of faith rises up and doesn't just pray, but walks it out. A bold and courageous woman is not just worrying about her life and her being okay, but her house and her home. And Watch this. She doesn't have children, but her motherly spirit covers her house, her home, her people, and her nation. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and your love. We thank you for this opportunity, God, to to celebrate our women and and the motherly spirit that you've given, but also celebrate your word and how you've worked through the Bible through women like Queen Esther. God, I pray the value of this would not fall in deaf ears to every man, every woman and student in this place today, Father, that we would carry this faith and carry this wisdom into our daily walk. Father, speak to our hearts, Lord. Let us now major sacrifice as kingdom work and not overlook it, Father. Let us trust you. The Queen Esther trusted you. Before making decisions and, and having conversations and, and doing all kinds of things, let us walk like her and pray and fast and, and seek your face before making decisions and, and jumping into situations, God. Oh, there's such value in this to learn, Lord. And I thank you. Those of us who are struggling here today, those of us who people have come against us, let us know that one day the poles that have been set for us, others will be not us impaled on. And so God brings strength to your people in this place today and hope through this story of a godly woman. Lastly, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you in any way are far from Jesus in this place, if there's anything in your heart that's far from God that you don't know what would happen to you tomorrow if you were to die, let me tell you, whether you were saved and you feel like you're backsliding because you walked away from God, or whether you never prayed, this is your moment to pray and to receive the Lord either rededicate your life or to receive him for the first time. Do not leave this place without the God of Queen Esther, without the God of Mordecai, without the God of the Jews, without the God who preserved them and rose them up. Don't leave without him. And so, church, we're going to pray this prayer for those in this building and online who don't know Jesus, who don't have a relationship with him, who've walked away. You're a prodigal. You've walked away, but you're coming back today, I believe, in Jesus' name. We've prayed for you. And so, we pray this with me. Lord God, We believe in you. We repent of our sins and welcome Jesus into our lives. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Give us a hunger for your word and for discipleship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Put your hands together for all those who prayed that prayer today. We love you, church family, and God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. 
If you would like more information about our church, please check out our website at LegacyChurchAI.org or follow us on social media at LegacyChurchAI. We'll see you next time. Thank you.